Good morning, everybody. It's good to be with you all today. Today we are continuing our series that we're calling Resurrection People. And we're looking at, specifically we're walking through in the lectionary texts, um, the uh, first few chapters of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. So we're looking at these big themes that Paul has about identity and about community and about how we live and what it means to be a people with like a vocation and a calling as the church. And today, to understand this passage in Ephesians chapter 2, we only have to understand one kind of small piece of historical background. There's one little thing that we have to understand, one small thing that we have to clear up, and that little thing is only the history of humanity. Okay. Um, According to this passage, what Paul is saying here is he says, there's basically two, broadly two kinds of people in the world. Okay? There's two kinds of people in the world. There have been, uh, first of all, Gentiles. These are the people who make up most of the world. So Paul would say to his community, all the Greek and Roman civilizations, all of the civilizations of what we know as Asia today and Egypt, right? Like all of these great civilizations, all their accomplishments, all of their failures, everything, these are the Gentiles, the broad mass of humanity. And then there's another much smaller group And this smaller group emerges from a single family. It comes from one specific family, and that's the family of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And this particular family, who Paul calls the community of Israel, has this calling. They're God's chosen people. They're called to be unique. They're blessed, but not just for the sake of like isolation or they can just be puffed up and feel good about themselves, but they are called and they are blessed so that they can bless everybody else. They can bless the world. They have this particular calling. And somehow Paul says in this letter that in the person of Jesus and in the cross, that there is this coalescence of these two people groups. These two have come together. There's this coming together, you can imagine, of these two mighty rivers. One is big and strong and mighty and massive. The other one is small, but special and unique. And these two groups have come together. But what Paul says is it's so interesting because as these two rivers come together, um, he doesn't use rivers, but as these two groups come together, the, the larger group takes on the name of the smaller group. And that's interesting because if we think in our world of like corporate mergers, right? Or you think about like a big company that like acquires a smaller company, that smaller company just takes on all of the identity of the larger company. Well, that's not the case here with Gentiles and the community of Israel that somehow Gentiles, this whole mass of civilization has been brought in, has been grafted in and has taken on the identity of God's chosen people. And with that, they have taken on the covenant. They've taken on the relationship that God has with Israel and the calling to be blessed in order to bless the world. So are you with me so far? We have two groups in humanity. Humanity equals two big groups. In Jesus, a radical thing happens. They're both brought together as one people, God's covenant people, the community of Israel is what he calls it here, okay? And as Paul describes what's happened here, he he starts by speaking to the Gentile Christians about how they used to be. Wow. Wow, that's a really large airplane this morning. Somebody's going somewhere in a hurry. So he starts by speaking to the Gentile Christians about their former state. Like, this is where you used to be, he says. Previously, you had no God. 
It's interesting the word that he uses here in verse 12. He says, you were without God or you had no God. That's where we get our English word. This Greek word is where we get our English word for atheist. No God, without God, you know. Um, so they were atheists, Paul says. Now that's really strange if you know the history of the Gentile people because they actually believed in a lot of different gods. So why are they atheists if they have all of these different gods. But for Paul, what he's saying here is all of these gods, these things that they've given their life to and they've worshiped to are non-existent. So without, without uh, God himself, all of these other gods are nothing. So they actually are functionally atheists. They had no God, he says. Now, this was also strange because in the Roman world, and this is so, so fascinating when I first heard about this, Jews and Christians were called by the Roman people, they were called atheists. So if you were a Jewish person or a Christian person in the Roman empire, they would call you an atheist. Why? Well, in the Roman society, they would have all of these statues to gods everywhere and they would participate in these festivals. And all they notice is that the Jews and the Christians don't participate in these festivals and they don't have statues anywhere. They don't believe that their God is contained in a statue. So the Romans would look at them and go, they don't have a God. Right? They don't have the statues, so they must not have a God. So they're atheists. So what Paul is saying here is he's saying that Gentile Christians, I know all of your family looks at you. All of your friends, all the people in society, they look at you and they say, you are without God. You are an atheist. You don't worship the gods. You don't have the statues. You don't participate in the festivals. You are without God. He says, but here's what I want to tell you. You used to be without God. It's actually the opposite. But now, now God has found you. God has rescued you. Paul says it's actually the things that look real to you, the things that were the statues and the things that were tangible, those things are actually not God. <laughs> they are not existent. You were worshiping something that doesn't really exist. And now there is something that's true all the way through. <laughs> there is the one who is true all the way through who has found you. I think for us, this challenges us to stop and ask, what is it that we give our lives to, that we worship, that we love, that doesn't actually exist? Wow, that's a deep question. What is it that we worship that doesn't really exist? In the moment, it looks really real. It looks powerful. It looks like it might be the response to our longings. It looks like it might fill that need for us, but actually it's nothing. Think about the promises in our world of consumerism, that if we just buy enough, we just, just achieve enough, if we just get that car as a status symbol, that sign of success, that fame, if we just get that thing, that's gonna be the thing that is real, that fills us. I think Paul would say to us today, all of that stuff is not God. <laughs> that's, all the, that's all atheist. It's all without God. God has rescued you. Also in our world, something interesting is that something can be meaningful without being ultimate meaning. What do I mean by that? I think evangelism is so difficult and unique in our age. Um, I was raised in the church and was raised in a very specific subculture in the church. And I don't know if any of you remember, and we're part of the same subculture, the donut man. Anybody remember the donut man? Anybody? Some of it may be my age, because a lot of you are younger than I am too. But 
The Donut Man was this Christian singer, okay, and he was like, did kids songs. And I never knew why he was called the Donut Man until I researched this um, recently. It got into a deep dive. It was great. But he uh, was called the Donut Man because this idea that like there's an emptiness in, in your heart. And so God comes and he fills that emptiness. So a donut has a hole, and so you need to fill that hole. So he's the donut man. He's come with the good news, and he's come to fill that hole, right? So that was the whole thing. I won't sing any of the songs today. I thought about it. I'm not going to. But, he, but that was kind of his thing. Well, I think a lot of us were raised with evangelism in that sense, that we go around to people, and we remind them that they have a hole in their heart, and that it needs to be filled. And of course, that's true, right? We all have something, that longing for us. But we live in a culture now where um, we live in a culture where most people don't experience their lives that way. Um, they have filled that longing with so many other things that actually provide some sort of meaning and significance for them. So if we go around and we just keep saying to people like, um, Hey, there's a God-shaped hole in your heart. I know you're longing and I know you don't, you know, you need, you're really needy. And so let me tell you about Jesus. There's this sense of, well, I'm good actually. <laughs> you know, I have some meaning. I have significance in my life. And there are rival stories of meaning and significance in our world that are compelling, that are really compelling. Now they're not true all the way through, but they're compelling. So if we just go around telling people that they're empty, they might actually say, I'm actually doing fine, thanks. The Christian calling is to a story and to living a story that's not just compelling, but is actually real all the way through, that it proves itself in the end. And it's not empty because it's lasting. That's the world of the Ephesians. Christians are being reminded that even though there's a bunch of competing God stories in your world, you are part of a story that has meaning all the way through, completely. And many of these Ephesians are Gentiles who are now being told by their families, by their friends, and by their country that they are godless because of this new way that they've embraced. And Paul is saying it's actually a whole different thing. You used to be godless. What you were chasing before is empty, but now God has rescued you. You're part of something that's true all the way through. Okay, so he talks to the Gentiles. But the Jewish people are not immune here either, the Jewish Christians, okay? So he challenges the Gentiles, but then he also challenges the Jewish people implicitly in the first verse. Paul says something subversive about his own people, the Jewish people. So there was this group of Jewish Christians in the first century, and we'll call them, they were part of a party that we translate to the strong pro-Torah party. It was like a political party. And what they wanted is they wanted Gentiles who became Christians to go ahead and get circumcised, all right? In order to prove that they were really all in for Jesus. So um, dudes, like think about this for just a second, right? So you've just converted, right? And there's this group of people that are telling you, you have to absolutely have this procedure done before you become part of God's real family. But Paul says this, he says, just as the Gentiles define themselves by the gods they worship and the festivals they keep, and that's false, that's empty, so the Jewish people are false when they define themselves by whether or not their male members have had a particular procedure done to them, okay? So he calls out both of these things. 
That's equally wrong. The circumcision is something he says that's been done by human hands, which is actually a pretty, it's a really strong statement. You heard that in two of our passages today. This, that has been done by human hands. And that was like an insult. And it basically, that's what the Jewish people used to say about the pagan gods, that the pagan gods were built by human hands. It's like an awful thing to do. So Paul calls them out here and says, this is not the end in and of itself. Gentiles are no, no longer defined by your worship of cultural deities. Jews are no longer defined by this badge of membership that you wear, that's circumcision. You are defined by the fact that you are in Christ. Christ has done this for you and that's your identity. And this new family that is in Christ, it's not just that the Gentile family has been fixed or made right, that first river. It's not just the Jewish family plus, God has made a whole new family, a whole new humanity, a whole new river of the two. And Paul transitions to speak about how this coming together of Jew and Gentile into one family happens. It happens through the cross. So verse 13, he says, the cross of Jesus has brought the pagans close in when they were far away. It has also torn down the barrier that stood up between these two families. So that's been torn down in Jesus. That's verse 14. It has abolished the law. And that doesn't mean that the law was never given. It was given and it was appropriate. But the law always had this idea that Jews and Gentiles would eventually come together. They'd be part of the same family. God's goal, ultimate goal, was never the separation of Jew and Gentile. It was bringing them together. Little tangent um, on this that helps me think about how this works with the law is uh, as parents, we often have rules for our children that are important as part of their development, but they're not rules forever, okay? So the goal of some of those rules is not that, um, now we have some rules that we go, yeah, it's a good idea that you never ever do that thing. But there's also some rules that are like, at this stage of your development, you can't do that, okay? And eventually those rules will go away. So this past week, we crossed an interesting threshold with Lucy. I let her chop broccoli, okay? That was a big deal, all right? So, so I'm sitting there and she has wanted to do this forever. She's wanted to chop things <laughs> forever, right? And so um, now Lucy is very coordinated. She's, and also I was watching her like a hawk the whole time and our knife is not all that sharp, but I, I let her chop broccoli. Um, now, before that day, I had a rule. You may never use kitchen knives, period, end of sentence. And yet that rule was never my ultimate goal for her life. Does that make sense? It wasn't that, Lucy, you may never, ever, ever, ever touch a kitchen knife. In fact, if she grew up and she just was always going to the kitchen going, nope, I'm not ever touching that, that would be a problem, okay? But there's this temporary goal. There's this uh, temporary rule. There's this thing that says to protect you in your formative stage so that you can understand the purpose and function of things in life so that you can grow into maturity and you can flourish. We have these rules and these guidelines for you. The goal of the law for the Jewish people was never to make the Jews prejudiced of the Gentiles, even though in the first century, that's how it was being used, okay? The goal was that the Jewish people would understand they were called to something different than the rest of the broken world was called to. They were called to be a signpost of God's heart and God's reality. God was calling them into something radically different 
so that they wouldn't be drawn away by the pagan gods. They wouldn't lose their identity as God's people. So the law that God gave was incomplete. It was, it was temporary. It was good, but it was temporary. But it wasn't all that God would have for his people. And yet the goal of the law was always that the Jewish people, in knowing their uniqueness, would bless everybody else and that all would come together. Now in Christ, Paul says, the doors have swung open. So the dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile has been torn down. I love that image. It's one of my favorite images in scripture. The dividing wall of hostility has been torn down. And it is God who's done this by his own action. So think about, if you think about the Genesis story where God creates the world and God calls things into existence. Nothing else happens except God speaks and it happens. Okay, God calls things into existence. That's what happens with the church. God speaks and he calls out this church. He calls out the new humanity. He calls out this new family, not by anything that they've done, but simply by his speaking. This new humanity is created not because of our human achievements, even religious achievements or naturalistic achievements, but simply because he speaks. For us as a local community of faith, this is important because... We have to remember that, and I think, I don't know, um, I'm sensing right now in prayer that God is preparing our community for something right now. Um, I'm sensing that we might grow as a family soon. Um, and I feel like God is forming us and kind of shaping us and preparing us for something. And it's so important as we continue to participate in the church that we realize we don't create the church. The church is. Our showing up here every week doesn't create the church. We participate in the church. We are part of it. Our part really matters, but God creates the church. And that's a good thing, I'll tell you why. Um, because if it's all about what we do, what we do on Sundays looks kind of silly to the world, okay? It does, like think about it for a minute. Like you do what on Sundays? You sing some songs, you hear a glorified TED talk, you make a really big deal about a meal that's just a cracker and barely a swig of wine. Like, what do you do on Sundays? If it's up to us, if it's up to how the world defines the church, this is just silly. But thank you, Lord, it's not up to us. God has called the church into existence. Eugene Peterson says of this passage, I love it, Paul wants us to first understand and then participate in church as it is, as the living Christ. He wants us to understand church first of all and primarily in terms of ontology, which is just that it's, it's being, okay? It's being, not its function. Now there are of course functions. Things happen, things are done, there are jobs to do, there are tasks to be obeyed. But if we don't grasp church as Christ's body, we'll always be dissatisfied, impatient, angry, dismayed, or disgusted with what we see. We will never see the intricacy of church. We will entirely miss the praise of his glory, as Paul says. We will fail to discern what is going on right before our eyes in our congregation. Another way of saying this is that 
What we do on Sundays is what happens. Like that is the church, that is what we do. And also there's something else that we can't see that's happening and we can't fully define it, but we trust in that reality. So here's an important thing about this passage. In Jesus, God has created this new humanity and it's one humanity, not two, okay? And that new humanity is a direct result of the gospel itself. This is important because when we often think about what Jesus did on the cross and in the resurrection, we think of it as something he did for each of us individually, which is true, okay? Like uh, Martin Luther said, but for me, but for me, the cross is but for me. Like we talked about this before last week, how um, the slaves in the church, in the first century uh, church in Ephesus would have heard this and gone, you are set free, you are delivered. So individually, there is a component to that. But you've been rescued, not just as an individual, but as part of a family. You've been brought into a family. You were not just rescued to become an individual Christian. You were rescued to be part of a family. And that family includes and included for the church in Ephesus and includes for us today, people who come from all different backgrounds, all different places, all different places where humanity was defined in all different kinds of ways. This family includes people who used to define who they were primarily by their politics, by their political ideology on both sides of the aisle. And they still struggle with reminding themselves that's not their primary identity. This family includes people who have been told certain things about who they are their entire lives and it's kept them in shame and in despair they come to this family clinging to the cross. This family includes black and white, Latino, Asian, all whom come from particular backgrounds with particular expectations. And the church in Ephesus is also probably experiencing something. Anytime you bring people together from different backgrounds and different identities, you are bound to have conflict. Conflict is inevitable. And through that conflict, we have to come to a common defining reality. So what Paul says here is for the church, Jesus is that defining reality, okay? So you came from all these different places where you all had different defining realities. Gentiles have come and our defining reality used to be the gods that we worshiped and the festivals we participated in. Jews come with a different uh, defining reality. It was circumcision and the Sabbath feasts and different things like that. He says, now the defining reality to get us through this conflict is Jesus. Now, sadly, Christians are not often known for the peace of Christ. Many of you read this week uh, the story of our good friends, Adam and Laura Willard. Um, you, you guys will notice activity from them on like the sacrament congregation page every once in a while. Um, they are a couple in Madagascar who felt called seven years ago to go to the rural tribes of Madagascar and to preach the gospel. They are some of the bravest people I know. They went to a village off the coast of Madagascar that had um, really never heard about Christianity. Um, and if they had heard of Christianity, it was our ancestors hated Christianity, so we're not ever allowed to embrace Christianity. And they've been there now for, they've been on the island for five years. And this past month or couple months, um, the only other couple that was there with them, they used to have a team of several couples and it went down to one. The only other couple came to them and said, we wanna split from you. 
We wanna have two different ministries on the same island, um, separate from you, and we don't wanna have anything to do with you anymore. Um, you can imagine, after being there as long as they'd been there, these are the only other foreigners, the only other people that have any kind of Amer American kind of background from them, um, and the only other Christians on the island at this point had separated from them and divided from them, and it just broke their heart. Adam and Laura have such a heart for the unity of the gospel and showing that the Christian faith is about people coming together, not splitting apart, that they believe they actually can't even stay on the island anymore because the people in the village have all looked at it and gone, so sad, why are you guys breaking apart? Why are you doing this? So they've now moved to the mainland because they feel like their ministry has been compromised there. And it just grieved my heart when I read this. I went, Lord, heal us. These places where we go and the gospel is bringing people together, is unifying, and yet we still continue to divide. They believed though, and I trust when the Willards said this, that they believe that if the gospel really is, if it, it must be, if it is fruitful, it has to be out of unity. And that's why they made the choice that they did. Um, Paul uses this word peace three times in this section. Okay, so he uses peace three different times. And he says, this is how Jesus makes peace. Five things. He brings home, he brings together, he breaks down hostility, he recreates a unified humanity, and he reconciles all of us to God. So the five ways that Jesus makes peace, according to Paul. And I wanna talk about those really briefly here, but first we have to talk about something. Whenever we talk about identity, one thing that Paul is dancing around here is baptism. Baptism is this marker that you have stepped into God's family. It is this physical sign, this physical reality that you are part of a different story, that you're part of a different family, that you've stepped into a different identity. Now, many of you, this is hard because you were baptized as a small child or even as an infant, and you say, well, I don't even remember that. Like, that didn't mean anything to me. That was just tradition. But I wanna suggest that even if it didn't, if you don't remember it or it didn't mean anything in the moment, that it did mean something. That that baptismal identity did mean something. It was a sign and a seal, and we are confident that through all of that, from that moment to today, that God has been faithful and has walked through with you on your journey. And let me be clear, we believe here, if you were baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you've been baptized, right? That you have been baptized. Um, now, we also believe the importance of making a confession of faith. So as we've been baptized, if, if you didn't know what was going on at that moment, we know that there's a moment that in the future that that becomes real to you, that you own that, and you even make a public declaration to the community that that is real. Yes, I am part of God's family. Yes, I have affirmed this faith. Now, some of you are here today and maybe you've never been baptized before. And this is hard to hear. You're saying, all right, I've never been baptized. Um, does that mean I'm not part of God's family? Do you remember last week when I told you the story of Lucy's adoption? Um, I said that it was 18 months from the time that she was born to when we finalized her adoption. And I talked about how those 18 months were tough in some ways, that we carried around these guardianship papers of her all the while knowing she is fully and completely our child. 
Lucy was part of our family from the very beginning, and there was never any doubt of that. In fact, you could even say that Lucy was part of our family from the foundation of the world, I believe. Now, I don't know how all this works with the Christian who's being drawn into the family of God. I do believe there's things, there are such things as thresholds of faith where we're not called to just sit on the margins forever. But I do believe that as God does the drawing, he welcomes each of us as one who is already his dearly beloved, already one who is part of his family. So if you're here today and you say, I've never been baptized, does that mean I don't have a baptismal identity today? I want you to know you are invited into God's family and God already treats you and knows you and loves you as part of his family. Now in joy and love, let's go to the river together. Let's go to the fount, let's go to the pool, let's walk through the waters of baptism together. And why is this important? Why do we stop all of a sudden and talk about baptism? Well, many of us have seen baptism as an experience that we have, like a marker, like a, uh, um, we see it as this rite of passage in our lives, but we don't often catch that baptism is something we are called to live into, that we're given an identity that becomes a vocation for us. It becomes a way of living in the world. So that means that being part of that family, that one humanity in Christ, is now the primary thing that defines us. In baptism, we go under the water as a participation with Christ going through death. We come out on the other side as participation with Christ going through resurrection. We are a resurrection people, a people who in Christ have crossed the great sea of sin and death. And that means we're called to live differently. We are resurrection people. So the questions from this are, what would it look like to, to be a people, to live as a people who were free from sin? What would that really look like? Now hear this rightly. We are free from sin because we don't need it anymore. Free from sin because we don't need it anymore. We don't need the counterfeit stories because we have the real thing. We don't need what it does for us. We don't need the counterfeit narratives that it tells us. We have a better story and a better identity. What would it mean to live a life that's free from fear, free from insecurity? That doesn't mean we're never tempted by them. Of course we are. But we're so rooted in who we are that we're not swayed by them. I think if we, we lived into our baptismal identity, we would think about ourselves differently. So many of us spend so much of our life craving the right identity, the right thing about ourselves. So we'd think about ourselves differently. We'd also think and view and treat others differently. I think that's what Paul is getting at here. We wouldn't be afraid of those who are different, who come from different places or different backgrounds or lifestyles or ethnicities, right? We have been given the identity of resurrection. We are new creation and we are called to live that out. What would it look like for a church community to live out peace? If a community was truly oriented in the way of Christ, it might suggest a few things just as we close here. First of all, a community that is oriented in the way of Christ 
Um, in that community, people are brought home. People are brought home. I wonder if you're here today and you've just always felt like a person without a home. You are part of a family. You are invited in. What would it mean to be a people who are actively looking for those who are looking for a home, right? The generations in this church have been historically scared of like evangelism and probably rightly so. But what if evangelism really just meant finding the people in your life who are without roots, without identity, without a home, and inviting them into God's family? You don't have to be ready to defend all their questions. You don't have to, be, have to go and tell them how bad and how wrong they are. In fact, don't do that, right? You invite them in to God's home. Secondly, people are brought together. I wonder if you're here today and you're experiencing discord in your relationships. Some of you may be estranged from your family and friends, or you feel like an outsider or excluded. If we're part of a new humanity, that means we view our, Christians, our Christian brothers and sisters differently. And in a broader sense, we view all of humanity differently. Those who have been around here for a while know that one of the passions of mine is the body of Christ coming together. It's one of the reasons we have so much value for different Christian traditions. And that may be to our strength and to our fault sometimes too. But we recognize that, that all of these different Christian traditions, that as we come together in the name of Jesus, bound together by the creed, bound together by the person of Christ, that um, that's valuable, that that's important. That I think here in the 21st century, the church cannot continue to, to flourish and to thrive if we just fight with each other all the time. It's not gonna work. We're a church that desires to bring different people together and we've got a long way to go with that. But I wanna see us become a community that's bound together by nothing else than the triune God of grace. Not a church that's affinity-based or age-based or a specific ethnic makeup or politically aligned. We have a different calling as a church. We have a different commitment. Third, hostility is broken down. Like we said, conflict is inevitable. If you have any meaningful relationship in your life, you will have conflict. So if you're here today and you're married and you go, oh no, I have conflict in my marriage. This is not good. Everybody does. <laughs> That's part of meaningful relationships, right? Is we have conflict. But conflict and hostility are different things. Peace comes through resolving, not avoiding conflict. So in marriage counseling, what we tell couples is that conflict is only resolved with a common goal so like if we have a common goal together, that's, it's only resolved through that. And on a deeper level, we experience the breaking down of hostility in the body of Christ when we have a common point. We have a common identity. Our goal as the people of Christ is to be formed in the way of Jesus. And that guides us as we untangle the inevitable conflicts and it actually makes us stronger on the other side. Fourth thing is a new humanity is formed. We are called and rescued by God to be something in the world. We're called to live this peace. We are a new humanity. And what that means is that the church is different. We're kind of weird. We're kind of oddballs in our world. We are in the world, we embrace the world, and yet we're called to something different. We're called to shine light. We're called to be unique in a specific way. And then lastly, people are reconciled to God. Those who have experienced brokenness in relationship with Christ are invited back in. I hope that this community here 
And I hope that each of us, as we go to work and to school, as we go throughout our lives and in our neighborhoods, that everywhere we go, we are a sign of reconciliation, of people being brought back in. That even those that don't even know much about you will be able to see you and go, there's something about them that I just feel welcome and embraced and loved by who they are. People are reconciled back to Christ by the God who loves them more than they could know. This section closes describing the church like a building. Jesus is the chief cornerstone, and it says that with Jesus, the building rises and falls. In the creed that we're about to say together, and then also the Nicene Creed, which is a longer of the two creeds, we describe the church as one, as holy, as Catholic, and as apostolic. One means we're part of a new humanity that is one, not multiples. Holy describes the fact the church is different, unique, or set apart. Catholic, and this is the word that a lot of people get hung up on sometimes, is not a denominational label, but Catholic means universal. It means all Christians are bound together everywhere. We're not just isolated individuals and communities. And apostolic means we're sent, we're on mission. We're not just here just to feel good about ourselves. (laughs) We're here to go. May we continue to see ourselves as this building with each of us as the joists and boards and shingles and light switches and countertops and flooring and cabinetry all together dependent on the builder, the Holy Spirit as a dwelling place for God. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you for this new family that we've been brought into. Many of us come or we go, we look back on our lives and we go, I was homeless. I was without a home. Some of us look back on our lives and we go, I was godless. I chased after all these things that I thought were really meaningful, but they're actually empty. All of us are tempted by all this stuff on a regular basis. But Lord, we thank you that we have a new identity in you and we're part of a new family. As we, as individuals, as we, as families, as we, as a church, seek to live out that identity in our neighborhoods, in our workplace, in our schools, we thank you that it's not all about us, but that you go before us, that we get to participate in what it means to be the church. I pray for those today who are crippled by shame in their lives. They look back on where they've been or what they're in now, and they just sit there and go, I'm just awful. How could God ever possibly use me? I pray that you'd continue to speak over them their new identity in you, that they've been rescued, that they've been loved, that they've been forgiven. And Lord, may we be a people who shine that light to the world. We praise you in the name of our great high priest, Jesus Christ. Amen.